0: Interpol coordinates international enforcement action against scammers. A new version of ICE Loader is observed, exploiting versioning limits to render files inaccessible. Reflections on the first large scale hybrid war. Kelly Shortridge from Fastly on why behavioral science and economics matter for InfoSec. Patrick Orzakowski from DeepWatch on Russian IOCs and critical infrastructure and the possibility of cyber escalation in Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. From the CyberWire Studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Thursday, June sixteenth, 2022. Interpol has announced that its Operation First Light 2022, directed against telecommunication fraud, business email compromise, and the money laundering associated with them, has yielded a significant haul. Results are still coming in, but so far, Interpol says, the operations tally is 1,770 locations raided worldwide, some 3,000 suspects identified, some 2,000 operators, fraudsters, and money launderers arrested, some 4,000 bank accounts frozen, and some 50 million U.S. dollars worth of illicit funds intercepted. Law enforcement organizations in 76 countries were involved, a remarkably large cooperative effort. Four countries conducted the raids, China, Singapore, Papua New Guinea, and Portugal. The crimes involved were varied, ranging from human trafficking to Ponzi schemes built around bogus job ads. So bravo, Interpol, and bravo to its cooperating partners. Researchers at Fortinet describe a new version of Ice-X Loader being hawked in criminal-to-criminal markets. The researchers say Ice-X Loader is a commercial malware used to download and deploy additional malware on infected machines. The latest version is written in NIM, a relatively new language utilized by threat actors the past two years, most notably by the NIMSA Loader variant of Bazaar Loader used by the TrickBot group. The new version is more evasive and difficult to detect than its predecessors. And, of course, successful infection exposes the victims to deployment of other, more damaging malware. Proofpoint researchers have discovered a Microsoft 365 functionality that allows ransomware to encrypt SharePoint and OneDrive files and make them unrecoverable without backups or a decryption key. Researchers explain that threat actors can gain access to a user account through compromising or hijacking credentials, then can lower versioning limits on files on OneDrive and SharePoint down to something as low as 1, encrypt the files twice, and if they feel so inclined, can exfiltrate the unencrypted files and ask for a ransom. Another option for encrypting the files doesn't involve changing the versioning settings The default version limit is 500, so a file can be edited 501 times, rendering the original unrestorable because, as the 501st version, it exceeds that limitation by one. The malicious actor could then encrypt the files after each of the 501 edits, and increasing the version limit post-attack cannot restore the file. Proofpoint disclosed this information to Microsoft, which explained, first, that the versioning settings configuration workflow is working as intended, and second, that older versions of files can be recovered and restored for 14 days by using Microsoft Support. While the versioning settings configuration functionality is working as designed, Proofpoint says that it can still be abused by malicious actors. The researchers also reported difficulty recovering older versions of some files through Microsoft Support. In full disclosure, Microsoft is a Cyberwire partner. The Atlantic Council has an essay by Yuri Shuchial, head of Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection. Mr. Shuchial discusses Russia's war against Ukraine as the first cyber war, that is, the first major war in which cyber operations have been integrated fully into planning and operations. One of its conclusions is that the war has rendered obvious what's long been known by close observers of cyber gangs, the place the Russian cyber underworld occupies in Moscow's order of battle. Mr. Chichil says, The current war has confirmed that while Russian hackers often exist outside of official state structures, they are highly integrated into the country's security apparatus, and their work is closely coordinated with other military operations. Much as mercenary military forces, such as the Wagner Group, are used by the Kremlin to blur the lines between state and non-state actors, hackers form an unofficial but important branch of modern Russia's offensive capabilities. Shachiel also notes that the war has revealed Russian limitations as well as Russian capabilities. Ukraine's infrastructure has shown significant resilience under Russian cyber-attack. Computing has an essay arguing that in wartime, nations now have as much to fear from cyber attacks as they do from kinetic attacks. At first look, this seems to be overstated. After all, cyber attacks become lethal only when they have kinetic attacks. A ransomware attack, for example, as such, is very far from being an artillery barrage, and a corrupted database isn't the same thing in real life as an artillery preparation. Unless we become Gnostics who believe the physical world is less real than the information space, few would go that far. But reading past the headline, that's not the essay's point. Its argument, rather, is that modern infrastructure is now so inextricably intertwined with and dependent on information technology that cyber attack can and do have physical kinetic effects. Computing quotes Ian Hill, director of cybersecurity at BGL Insurance, who said at the magazine's conference last week, The real world and the virtual world have become so interdependent. Our physical world, certainly in the context of Western society, has pretty much got to the point of no return, where our dependence on technology and technology's dependence on the Internet, that the economy cannot exist without them. If anything happens to the Internet or some connected technology, we've got a real problem. Observers continue to debate why Russian cyber attacks haven't been more widespread and more destructive than they proved so far to be. If Shechiel is correct, as he seems to be, that Russian cyber operators are about as concerned with abiding by the norms of proportionality and discrimination embodied in international laws of armed conflict, as Russian infantry and artillery have shown themselves to be, then the apparent restraint Moscow has exhibited seems to require explanation. An essay in Cybersecurity Hub concludes that a partial explanation can be found in deterrence. President Putin doesn't want a full war with NATO and has been concerned to avoid attacks on critical infrastructure that would provoke a kinetic response from the Atlantic Alliance. If Russia has maintained the complete conquest of Ukraine as its objective, as many observers think it has— Can deterrence be expected to hold in cyberspace as the war inevitably escalates on the ground? An assessment in GIS concludes that it may not. They say Russia's red lines and escalation strategy could further change in the weeks and months ahead. How the military, political, and economic aspects evolve and war aims change will influence how the Kremlin decides to use its cyber capabilities in the conflict. Speaking this week at Defense One's Tech Summit, Neil Higgins, the Deputy National Cyber Director for National Cybersecurity at the White House's Office of the National Cyber Director, said, “I do think there is a risk that the deeper you get into this conflict, that the Russians will be pressed to resort to more aggressive operations. If you're acting quickly and desiring a large impact, there is a risk that you lose control, and that did occur. It certainly is a risk that we continue to monitor across the government. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use Kelly Shortridge is a senior principal at Fastly and co-author of the book Security Chaos Engineering. I met up with her at the RSA conference for insights on why behavioral science and behavioral economics matter.
1: The presentation was really diving into how... The Lizard Brain and also velociraptor Manage in Information Security. So uh, there are a few great examples. One is questioning folk wisdom, which is maybe a provocative thing to say at RSA. But for instance, you hear all the time, you know, stock prices are hurt when a breach happens. Well, if you look at the data, that's not necessarily the case. So be aware that uh, this is called availability bias, that just because something is familiar and it's repeated often, that doesn't mean it's true. It just means there's very good marketing. But you can also leverage that to your advantage when you're um, thinking about things like security awareness in your organization or you want to encourage secure behavior. You need to create those pithy messages. You need to make sure they're repeated. You almost need to have this uh, the same sort of principles as like a political slogan or marketing slogan. But we don't always think that way. Again, we present these kind of like very logical, drawn-out arguments for why security matters. But really, what people need—they just need like quick advice they can remember. Um, so that's a that's a simple example, of kind of how you can see on each side of the equation, this stuff matters.
0: Is there a, a fundamental issue here that uh, the lizard brain takes priority over the the more rational side of the brain? So it 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 screams the loudest and the quickest.
1: It does, yes. And uh, this is why it's actually useful again to kind of harness the lizard brain almost against itself. So there's a paper I'm actually working on with Josiah Dijkstra, um, which is around opportunity cost, which can be very elaborate. You have to think about, here are all of the alternative options. You know, Let's say it's spending six hours of your time. What are all the things you can do with it? Turns out it's a lot. That's way too much thinky-thinky, right? The lizard brain's like, I don't, I don't want to deal with all that. <laughs> However, you can create this heuristic of like, okay, but what if I did nothing? This becomes very powerful in information security. So consider application security testing, one of those tools use that heuristic, what we call the null baseline. Like, what happens if we did nothing? Maybe you would be releasing software to production faster. Maybe your developers would be less cranky. Maybe that's good for the organization. So you start to kind of uncover these hidden potential benefits or hidden costs of actually pursuing something security-wise and make sure that you're not um, introducing unintended consequences in your organization. Because then lizard brains, like, security is the most important. Like, clearly this is my priority. So, like, everyone else, you know, that doesn't care about security, clearly they're wrong and irrational. And can you believe that? Hmm. But instead, it's almost like you're harnessing uh, this new lizard brain tactic of like, okay, but let me just really quickly consider what if I did none of this instead um, in order to almost trick yourself into being more of a velociraptor
0: what about the the threat actors the, the the bad folks out there who are intentionally trying to trip the that lizard brain side who are trying to get you into an emotional state and not think rationally how, how do we how do we train people to be aware of that and be able to counter it
1: we don't as a security industry, we have to start designing, again, tools and workflows and procedures that try to help. We can't expect users to be experts. We can't expect them to have their thinky-thinky hat on all the time because we don't have it on all the time either. And frankly, if you're looking, most people are dealing with external emails constantly. And now we're saying, okay, 95% of the time when you click on this link from an external sender, it's going to be totally fine. But now you have to slow yourself down and maybe read you know, 20% fewer emails every day just for security, they're going to get fired probably because they're not going to be as productive. You can't ask them to do that. And training only goes so far. And I think if we were exposed to more training outside of security ourselves, we would realize like, oh yeah, I totally forgot that training message at some point. Um, so I think the answer is we don't. And frankly, these attackers are just using the same tricks you see in advertising and marketing. You know, like click now, the sale will end soon. Like all of those behavioral tricks to get you to like buy more and buy faster. Right. That's just what attackers are using. So until we get rid of all that, it's almost like whatever training we do is just going to be undone by the general commerce and, you know, even business emails. How many times have you had your boss say, like, you need to finish this by end of day. You need to, like, click and view this thing and review it for me. An attacker can just leverage that. So you're now saying, like, okay, you've got to train something that has to completely override, again, commerce, business culture, all that. I don't think it's going to work.
0: In general, would you say that um – The folks who are developing these tools, the developers in general, are they more lizard brain or velociraptor dominant?
1: Every human's more lizard brain dominant. Um, That's just how we're designed as a species. Um, That's part of the reason why we love, you know, like sweet and salty snacks and like immediate rewards and, you
2: know, all the
1: stuff, the shiny stuff we see at the conference, right? I think the key thing, there's this kind of um, unfortunate feedback loop in the industry where uh, people designing security tools have to satisfy the requirements of their customers. So that's the security teams. Security teams still have their lizard brain mindset of like, oh my gosh, everything's a threat. We're vulnerable. We have to protect it at all costs. And you know, as I say, like, they don't really care if like the money printer stops going like, brrr, like they're fine if it shuts down, if it means it's secure. It's obviously the business disagrees, but that means that if you're developing tool and you want to succeed for the most part, you have to cater to those requirements. And then, of course, the customers see more of the chatter about like eliminate all threats, like prevent everything, which is not, again, that's lizard brain sort of framing. Right. So this kind of like symbiosis around like, okay, stop everything at all costs and don't think about how to make things easy, fast, and simple for users. Like just have those like really annoying bolt-ons for everyone else. Save yourself some work up front, even though maybe down the line during the incident it's going to be extra messy. It's really unfortunate. Of course, um, I know we're we're talking more about the talk today, but my co-author Aaron Reinhardt and I are trying to change that with security chaos engineering and start to hopefully make um, more of that velociraptor and you know longer-term thinky thinky more automatic through um, a set of kind of principles and practices.
0: That's Kelly Shortridge from Fastly. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security Patrick Orszakowski is co-founder of cybersecurity firm DeepWatch, where he works directly with oil and gas and pipeline operators around the country to detect and respond to threats and attacks. At last week's RSA conference, Patrick's presentation centered on Russian IOCs hitting critical infrastructure in the U.S. during the Ukraine crisis and how this compares to other big attacks like Colonial Pipeline. We got together to discuss his findings
2: the APTs are really living off of the land and they are using known vulnerabilities mostly. Uh, So, you know, we hear things about zero days and catching behavioral things, which is great. I mean, those products need to be there to protect EDR and behavior analytics, things like that. But, you know, these actors are actually using traditional techniques and low-hanging fruit to attack systems, you know, CVEs that might've been around for six months that just haven't been patched yet. So, you know, I think those traditional kind of um, firewall techniques and uh, air gap techniques are kind of false sense of security for some of the traditional businesses, uh, manufacturing businesses, oil and gas. And they're now realizing that they have to accelerate their patch, patching and accelerate, you know, their protection of their systems. So, yeah.
0: Beyond patching, what what are some of the other things that you're highlighting here in terms of mitigation?
2: Yeah, um, you know, from a detection standpoint versus mitigation, I would say looking at the infrastructure. um, Traditional data sources that have been too noisy to look at, DNS, for example. Um, If you go Mm. back to the SolarWinds attack, you know, those actors use DNS as the main culprit for command and control. Right. They, they kept track of their victims using uh, DGA domains, subdomains, and they, their infrastructure was built around DNS. So a lot of folks, you know, kind of ignore DNS, even from a forensic standpoint. Right. I think we need to start looking at that from, you know, an operations standpoint, day to day, week to week, month to month, to look at that data. Because the actors need to use DNS as well to ride that infrastructure.
0: Interesting. Okay. What else?
2: East-west traffic, so understanding what's going on in a network. Um, you know, like I said, traditional firewalling techniques, those types of things. Actors will figure out what holes are in those internal firewalls as well. Okay. You know, you have ICS-OT networks that are separated by data diodes right. um, traditionally. Right. But, you know, a lot of those things, like if you look at um, the water attack in Tampa, yeah, right, using TeamViewer. Those workstations had special access to the water control systems. That's how they got so far in. So, you know, the actors will find ways in. And those holes that have been opened over the years, you know, you have security turnover. You have folks who poked holes in firewalls. Right. It's working. Don't touch it. Those actors will exploit those holes that are in the systems now to actually get into those manufacturing and OT systems.
0: Help me understand. I mean, to what degree... The, the fact that the nature of of this sector is there's a lot of one-offs. Mm-hmm. How much of a, an issue is that?
2: Huge. It's a yeah. huge issue because, you know, even same manufacturer like Siemens has 15 different models to do the same thing, right? So okay. 15 different pieces of firmware that need to be analyzed. It's a very niche um, area of security. Right. You know, OT has their own conference that they just had down in Miami. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of, been ignored until the recent, you know, colonial and, and the recent hacks that have happened. You have folks like Dragos doing great things, Rob Lee, sure, who sure. was on 60 minutes, right? So yeah. you know, at yeah. least it's getting out there that this critical infrastructure needs to be protected. So, you know, it's it's I think it is a huge issue that it is it is specialized, but we do need more services and products specifically around OT ICS to protect those things. Um, you know, you don't have the Crowd strikes and Sentinel-1s that you can throw on a controller that's, you know, $50,000 that does switching and things like that.
0: Right, right. Based on the data that you've gathered here, what are your recommendations? What should people be, be doing to, to gain some ground?
2: Yeah, like I said, I would say looking at the infrastructure data um, is critically important, uh, whether that's with uh, a real-time product like a Splunk or a SIM product, uh, whether that's a long tail product, um, some of the ML stuff that we're building at AWS hmm. um, looks at that data. I think, you know, just like we had a layered approach to defense, we need a layered approach to detection as well now, hmm. right? You have, you know, one hour, one day, one week, and, and each, each one of those detection windows has, has a different use case. So if you're looking at six months worth of data, and this kind of generated out of the solar wind stuff. It's like, how do we miss this for six months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you need that data. You have to look at that data as a whole to say and, and start picking out those things that are that are weird, right? Because the you know the attackers will, like I said, live off the land. T- they tend not to drop malware now. They tend to use the tools that are built in PowerShell, for example, in a right. Windows environment. Mm-hmm. So we need to gather all that data and analyze it. So. You know, those are, those are the things that folks can do outside of the traditional enterprise things of locking locking it down. I think having visibility into those systems, whatever data you can get, right? Like I said, you can't throw an endpoint product on a, on a controller, but you might be able to get all the DNS that's coming out of that network and put it in a single place. It's gonna be a lot of data, but at least you'll have some visibility into what those systems are doing.
0: That's Patrick Orzakowski from DeepWatch. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Savy, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data...